Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland at the end of the year. We're wishing you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year with this terrific Dreamland special event. Get set for something really extraordinary. The special will run over the next two weeks, and then we begin again. The new year will be upon us. What adventures await. We'll be run over two weeks, Christmas through New Year's, and then afterwards we're going to go deep into alchemy with Marlena Seven Bremner, a new discovery, one of the most extraordinary alchemists I have ever met. She's a young woman. Usually you have to be pretty old to get alchemy under your, under your belt, but this is a, an amazing person. Uh, we had Stash Derola on the show. He was very popular. He's noted in alchemical circles as one of the great alchemists of modern times. And I'm telling you, Seven is right up there. It's a it's a breathtaking show. Then we're going to have gray aliens and artificial intelligence. What is this about in the end? What is it about? But this week, we're going to start with Yuri Geller. Yuri Geller and Jimmy Church and Linda Moulton Howe. Yuri and Linda will be audio only. Jimmy and I talked on video successfully. Um, Yuri's going to be talking about amazing stuff uh, from the Ark of the Covenant to his latest ideas about the alien issue. Uh, Jimmy and I are going to go deep into a underground lake in uh, Egypt where he experienced the waters that cleanse the souls of the pharaohs. Then Linda and I are going to go into the status of the disclosure process, what's going right and what's going wrong and what to expect. And this is just going to be a great show, a great show. And I would like to thank everyone for 2022. The reason being that we tripled usership on unknowncountry.com in 2022, a massive increase. And even as the world opened up and COVID <clears throat> got sort of behind us, we still grew and are still growing. Why? Because this is very important stuff. And this is where you get the best, in my opinion, the absolute best of all of this edge stuff. Okay, well, that's my opinion. I hope it's yours, too. Anyway, after we're finished with our three guests, I'm going to talk a little bit about Christmas, and I'm going to read a Christmas poem that I wrote just for you. So let's get started, and we're going to welcome next... Yuri Geller to Dreamland. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there in the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? We have uh, been a while since we've had Yuri on the show and I want to start by explaining something, that I have become a citizen of another country. 
a new country. And Yuri, can you tell us a little bit about this country? Yes, absolutely so. Um, it goes back 13 years ago. I bought an island in Scotland, very near Edinburgh, just off the shores of North Berwick. Now, this is an amazing story because when I bought the island, I got a phone call from a Mr. Mohammed Al-Fayed. If you do not uh, recall the name, he was, he's a billionaire who uh, used to own Harrods, which is one of the, was one of the most exclusive department stores in London. And tragically, his son, Dodi, died with Princess Diana in Paris. Yes. And Mohammed told me, Uri, you've got to get hold of a book called the Scotty Chronicon, which was written 500 years ago by an abbot called Walter Bauer of Inchcombe. Because in that book, he says, um, there is a tale that Queen Scotta, who was one of the daughters of the pharaohs, Singrin, sailed probably three and a half thousand years ago to northern Europe, moored outside my Lamb Island. That's what it's called. My island is called Lamb Island. And she buried treasure, Egyptian treasure on the island. Wow, I was amazed (laughs) by that story. And by the way, Whitley, if you didn't know, but Robert Stevenson, who wrote the famous book, Treasure Island, actually lived opposite my Lamb Island. Unbelievable. So my (laughs) island inspired Robert Stevenson to write Treasure Island. Anyhow, five weeks ago, I decided to turn my island into a country. I know it sounds far out, but I have a flag now. I have an anthem. I have a constitution. And I even have a football team. (laughs) So, uh, you know, this story uh, went viral. And um, lots of papers wrote about it all around the world. And everyone can become a citizen. You simply go to urigeller.com, which is my website, and you pay one dollar. That's all. One dollar and your certificate, your citizenship certificate will print out. And the money, and this is the most important, goes to a charity that is called Save a Child's Heart. This charity have saved more than six, over 6,000 children with open heart surgery and from 64 countries. And by the way, half of the children were and are Palestinians. So it's a very good cause. And I'm so honored that you're one of my citizens. <laughs> well, thank you. It was my pleasure to become one of your citizens. Now, I would like to... I move now on to something else, and we're going to be talking about aliens and strange powers very soon, folks, but I want to talk first about the new Yuri Geller Museum in Jaffa. Well, um, I lived for 48 years overseas with my wife, Hannah, 10 years in New York, uh, 35 years in London, in England, in a small village called Sonning on Thames, 
Um, and I'm going to drop some names now, but Jimmy Page from the famous Led Zeppelin lives across the street from me. Uh, George Clooney's house is 250 meters from my house. Uh, Theresa May, who was a uh, prime minister of um, England, she lives in the village too. So I, we lived there for so long, so many years. My kids grew up there. And six years ago, I told Hannah, let's go back to our homeland, back to Israel, where I was born. And she said, okay. So we came back to Israel and um, one, six years ago. And one day I was walking in one of the big uh, main streets in Tel Aviv and a real estate agent grabs me. She says, oh, Mr. Geller, Mr. Geller, I heard that you came back to Israel. I have to show you this amazing building in old Jaffa. Now, old Jaffa, to those who don't know, is adjacent to Tel Aviv. It is 6,000 years old. It has the oldest port in the, in the Middle East. Uh, it is over 6,000 years old, the port. And I said, well, you know, I already live in Old Jaffa. No, no, no. She says, it's not a place to live. I said, oh, okay. Oh, show <laughs> me the place. So she opened this rusted blue door, a uh, metal door, a tin door, and wow, I, my job draw, dropped. I thought, oh, my goodness, what an amazing building. It must be hundreds of years old. And I told my wife and my brother-in-law, Shippy, listen, we are going to collect all the items I hoarded for 55 years. We're going to bring them to the, this space. I'm going to refurbish it first. And we're going to call it the Uri Geller Museum. Now, I have, and I'm not kidding you, I have things that I got from Mick Jagger, Elton John, John Lennon, David Bowie, Salvador Dali, Andy Warhol, Michael Jackson. I mean, I can go on and on. Picasso and my Cadillac, which has 2,600 famous spoons riveted to its body. So the museum is unbelievably eclectic. Exactly today, The Guardian, which is a very serious paper in England, wrote about the museum, so you can Google that. And um, yes, and, and uh, it's very successful. Uh, we donate most of the monies to that charity. I don't have to live from it. Uh, Besides, I'll never make back the money I spent refurbishing the museum. So that's the story of the museum. And you personally do every tour. You personally yes, take I every do. tour. Yes, I do, Whitley, and I'll tell you why. Nobody can tell the story um, uh, the way I do. But by the way, every item in the museum has a connection to me. Um, from Elton John to John Lennon to David Bowie and Salvador Dali. Um, and uh, what I discovered uh, in the museum with my dousing abilities is under the ground, under the stones, we found an ancient olive oil soap factory. And the Israeli um, uh, archaeological authorities were shocked. And I'm so excited now. I found this by simply by using dowsing that I promised the Israeli antiquity authorities that I'm going to find the Ark of the Covenant. I already know, Whitley, where it is. And when we pull it out, it is going to cause a nuclear tsunami, both uh, 
um, theologically, historically, archaeologically, religiously, you name it. It's going to cause an, a, a, a panic because it's basically going to validate the Bible. Well, interestingly enough, if it, it could also be that it reveals the fact that there was an advanced science in a time when it wasn't supposed to exist. Absolutely. I mean, you know, um, we, we, we can talk about aliens, and I'll tell you my alien story because you're yeah, going to be we're, amazed. We're going to get to that. Um, there is no doubt in my mind that alien uh, civilizations have been visited our planet, and, and not for thousands of years, but hundreds of thousands of years, maybe even millions of years. Um, I mean, you, you find etchings of UFOs and alien beings and ancient astronauts etched on caves that go back thousands of years. And um, no, aliens do exist. I mean, listen, all you have to do is watch the latest Pentagon uh, cockpit, yeah, uh, fighter you, pilot you, cockpit. You don't need to tell me or my listeners that yeah, aliens no, exist. No, I mean, we live with this. To, exactly. And, but let me tell you how I know uh, and what I've seen with my own eyes. But I have to go back. Um, I work for Mossad. Mossad did not understand how I do what I do. We're talking about 1968. They didn't have the tools to even put electrodes on my head. So what they did is they called the CIA. The CIA jumped on the idea to test my powers because they simply said, well, if there's an Uri Geller in Israel, maybe there's somebody like him in Russia. So they sent no other than Captain Edgar Mitchell to convince me to leave Israel. I was shocked. My goodness. Edgar Mitchell is calling me, the man who was a sixth man to walk on the moon. So I, I, I just boarded a plane in 1972. I left Israel in June 72, straight to Edgar Mitchell, to Palo Alto, California. He took me straight to Stanford Research Institute. I didn't really know that it was old CIA stuff funded by the CIA with CIA scientists and so on. Um, they validated my powers. I mean, listen to this. This is off. I'm reading this out from the CIA's website. As a result of Geller's success in this experimental period, we consider that he has demonstrated his paranormal perceptual ability in a convincing and unambiguous manner. Full stop, CIA. So I started working for the CIA. I got a, even a CIA little Minox German camera with which I spied in Mexico City. Okay, but I befriended Ed, Ed Mitchell. He became my mentor. He became my best friend. He flew over to my house many times in England and so on. But let's go into the alien story. One day, Mitchell tells me, Uri, listen, there's somebody very important in NASA that wants to meet you. I said, fine, who is he? And he says to me, it's, he's uh, Dr. Werner von Braun. What? I say to Mitchell, Dr. Werner von Braun? Wasn't he an ex-Nazi? And, I mean, you can all Google uh, Dr. Werner von Braun and you'll see photographs of him surrounded by Gestapo officers. Unbelievable. He was very close to Hitler. So I tell Ed Mitchell, Ed, do you understand I'm Jewish? I'm Israeli. Half of my family were murdered by the Nazis. You want me to meet Werner von Braun? Right. And so, but, but, but Whitley, my curiosity killed me. And in the end, I said, okay, take me. Now, 
We arrived to a secret NASA base. I gave my CIA Minox German camera to my brother-in-law, Shippy, who was with me. And I tell Shippy, Shippy, listen, the minute we enter Werner von Braun's office, you've got to take a picture because nobody will believe me. So we enter his office, Werner's office. Shippy takes a photograph. It's on Google. You can go to my website, urigeller.com. You'll find it there. And Werner's first reaction was, oh, Mr. Geller, I heard about your powers. If you can bend my wedding ring in the palm of my hand, I'll believe in your powers. So, of course, he takes his wedding ring off. He doesn't let me touch it. He places it in the palm of my hand, and I bend it. I place my hand over his. It bends, and then he says to me, Uri, come with me. So he takes me into his personal office. In his office, there is a safe. He bends down. He opens the safe, and there is a piece of metal in the safe. Werner pulls the piece of metal out. I've never seen such a color ever before, and also it's, it's not heavy. It's very light, and he says to me, Uri, put your hand on this. Tell me what you feel. I place my hand on the piece of metal, and I tell him immediately, Werner, this is not from here, and he says to me, you're right. This is a piece of a UFO that crashed on Earth. What? I almost faint because you see, Weekly, since I'm a child, I believed in UFOs. I believed in aliens. I, when I was seven, eight, nine, I used to sneak into um, films, movies about aliens. And this guy who puts the Americans on the moon is telling me that a UFO crashed on our planet. Yes. But hold on. Hold on, this is not the end of the story. Then Werner tells me, come with me. He takes me out to the parking lot. I hit Shippy, my brother-in-law, with my elbow. Take a photo. Shippy snaps a photo with our German Minox camera. You can see that photograph also on my website. And he puts me in his limo. He says, sit next to me. He tells his driver to drive. The driver drives deep into the NASA base. I won't mention the name of the base. It's very secret. It's a very secret base. And we come to a concrete building. Nothing is written on the building. There's a soldier standing at the door. Uh, Werner takes me, um, puts me uh, through the door. And we go down three or four flights. We come to a corridor with Antarctica orange warm coats hanging on hooks. He picks two coats off. He tells me, put one on. He puts one on. These are Antarctica coats. Yes? And yep. he, he walks with me around the corridor. And Whitley, we come to a huge metal door. There is, above the door, it says freezers. Werner von Braun opens the freezer door and he takes me in I walked behind him, and Whitley, I almost faint. Because what I've seen in those um, refrigerated rooms, uh, that was it. To me, that was it. You know, because I have a red line, because of certain agencies, I can't talk any further. But you guys listening to this um, interview... You can all imagine, I'm 
sending you it telepathically. I'm beaming it into your mind. One word. What I've seen are, and here is a word, and you all heard it. And that's my story. And hey, I don't have to know, to know anything anymore because I know everything. Over to you, Whitley. Well, it's quite a story. You, you have said also that there will be, uh, they will come. There will be an alien invasion. And at some point, you no, said... No, no, no. I'm oh, going to change your word. Please, here. please. Get, get. Because the invasion, the invasion was at some, some tabloid in England turned it into an invasion. No. Um, the ones that will come are, will come peacefully. It's, this is not a movie Independence Day. Uh, they, they will come to, uh, probably they are the ones that are keeping Putin from uh, putting his finger on the nuclear trigger. I mean, you, you realize how near we were or are to a nuclear third world war. Well, and yeah, and we know there, and there, have been, there have been UFOs yeah. all over the Ukraine. The Ukrainian uh, the right. military is saying that these are unknown. That's right. By the way, let me just go back to that uh, secret NASA base. Uh, June Crane uh, worked with Verna von Braun. She held the piece that he showed me. So did Carol Sue Rosen, who was Verna von Braun's spokeswoman. So this is not something that I'm inventing. This is tangible and it's real and it happened. Every word that I'm saying to you happened the way I, I recall it. Um, so there, there, there will be a landing, no doubt in my mind. I can't tell you the time frame. I don't know when that will happen. But, you know, when the Queen died, Queen Elizabeth II died, I predicted that on the day that she's going to be buried, there will be UFOs over London. And they're where? Um, they're watching us. I mean, you know, Whitley, we're, we're on the same wave, wavelength. You know, we know that they exist and they visit us and they have been in communication with us. You know, all you have to do is read the first ever book that was written about me by Andrea Puharic, who was a, an American scientist who actually invent, invented, invented the oxygen mask for um, fighter pilots, American fighter pilots. Uh, he wrote a book about me called Uri. Already in that book in 1974, we talk, we're, we're talking about aliens. We're talking about communications with aliens. Well, yeah, a lot of the listeners, and this guy, me included, do that. I mean, that's what our lives are. We're very much in communication with, with I guess, aliens. Yes. Uh, with something, someone, for sure. Uh, the, 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 I was I'm very interested in where your powers are now and, and what you use them for. Because you've used them for so many things for so long. And, I mean, aside from spoon bending and that kind of thing, I, I, I saw you, by the way, years ago on, I believe it was on The Tonight Show, and some magician tried to duplicate what you did, and it was just absurd. Yeah, let me, let me just uh, tell you that I'm uh, hugely controversial, and I have to thank the skeptics and those debunkers who try to debunk me and fail miserably, 
because they created the myth around me. They created the controversy. They created the enigma. They created the debate. By the way, Whitley, without skeptics, I wouldn't be where I am today. So the, the, the magicians who tried to uh, destroy my career did the opposite. That night of Johnny Carson, that was the biggest show in my life. The spoon didn't bend enough for Johnny Carson, so he sneered and scoffed and all that. But the next day, I, I thought I was destroyed. I thought, already get back, uh, pack up and fly back to Israel. And the next morning, to my surprise, the phone rings in my Hilton Hotel in Los Angeles, and the operator says to me, Mr. Geller, I have a Merv Griffin on the line for you. I said to her, what? You mean the Merv Griffin? She says, yes. I get on the line, and Merv says to me, Uri, I saw you last night on Johnny Carson. I want you on my show tonight. Wow. That's when I realized that, hey, what Oscar Wilde said 100 years ago, he said there's only one worse thing in life than being talked about, and that's not being talked about. <laughs> By the way, Whitley, because we're coming to the end of um, the interview, I want to mention again to the people, my website is urigeller.com, and if you want to become a citizen of my land, my mysterious island, it's $1. The money goes to a, a children's charity to save the children's lives. I'm on Twitter, The Uri Geller. I'm on Facebook, it's The Uri Geller. I'm on Instagram, it's also The Uri Geller. My two new books are um, Learn How to Douse, uh, Use Your Most um, Amazing and Advanced um, Search Tool, which is your intuition. And my other book is um, You Can Have It All. And that's both books are on Amazon. And most of the proceeds, again, I give away. Uh, so I don't, you know, I have enough money. And uh, what can I tell you, Whitley? It was amazing to be with you. Is there, we have a few more minutes. Do you want to ask me anything else? Yeah. Well, f first, um, I have, uh, you know, we, we, those of us who are involved in this directly, me and most of my listeners are, in, with visitors, are sort of wondering what will happen next. And there's a definite feeling that it's not going to be 50 years or anything like that. No, we're, no. we're in the process of coming together now on some, in some way. But I'm not sure quite how, because like they're sort of in our lives. It's like having some, it's like having a partner in your body almost. If you know, yes. what I mean. yeah. Can yes. you sort of talk, talk to that? I'm sure you have ideas. Yes, my idea is this, or my feeling, or my intuition, or my psychic feelings, or call it whatever you want to. My feeling is uh, that there must, there will, there'll be a contact very soon, a la Steven Spielberg's movie. You know, you rem you, we all remember that film. And they are going to come in peace. They have to, and I'll tell you why. Because if they don't, this planet will be destroyed. I mean, look at the global warming. Look at the 25 or 30,000 nuclear bombs that we have in silos and submarines all, all over the world. Um, look at the diseases. Look at the hunger. I mean, we are in trouble. Uh, as we speak now, the, the um, globe, I mean, the Antarctica is melting. Uh, billions of tons of ice is falling into the ocean. Uh, the seas are rising. We don't have the technology to stop to stop that, but the aliens do, uh, and they need to give it to us, and soon, quickly. So if I had to predict the coming 10 years, there will be contact. 
I think there almost has to be if we're going to survive. We're, yes, yeah. there has to be. <clears throat> because there, if they there, don't, there come, has to be. Then and you know, this, only, this is going to fall apart. Yes, only you and I and your listeners who are the believers and uh, understand that. Um, most people out there listen and they're amazed, but they don't know the severity that our planet Earth, this beautiful gem, is um, going through. And it has to happen very quickly and fast. And the technology of the aliens, uh, the, the occupants of the UFOs, uh, they have that knowledge. They have that sophistication, the technology that we are lacking. And that's going to happen very, very soon. Well, I certainly hope so. You, what are your powers like now? Are they, you know, they, it started, well, tell us, just tell us for a few seconds. There could be three people out there who don't know how it started. Tell us how well, it started, I was, just briefly. Yes, I was five years old when I was eating soup. I'm a I was born in Tel Aviv, and suddenly the spoon bent in my hand. My mother uh, comes from Sigmund Freud's family. Uh, actually, my name in my British passport is Uri Geller Freud. So my mother, well, she thought, okay, I probably inherited something from the great psychologist. But uh, in school, teachers were amazed, pupils were amazed. And then I turned it into CIA stuff, Mossad. But I wanted to be rich and famous. I was on an ego trip. I was ruthless in the 70s. I wanted fame and fortune. So I became an entertainer. But I ebbed away from that. Today, I am, you know, I do positive things. I help governments, you know, like for instance, the Americans uh, wanted me to influence the Russians to sign the nuclear arms reduction treaty. And it was Senator Clayburn Pell and Ambassador Max Kempelman who took me to Geneva to bombard the Russians to sign. Yuli Voronsov, next to me stood Al Gore. And those are the type of things I do today. I got the Israeli Red Cross and the Palestinian Red Cross into the, um, the International Red Cross. That's, again, all on my website. So I try to teach people how to think positive. I motivate them. I inspire them. And, you know, that's what I do today. I, I always tell people, you know, the secret uh, of success is originality. And, and the, that's the inner happiness Inner happiness is a fuel of success. And you can start with nothing. And from nothing, from no way, there will be a way. And you can look at your body. You can look at your mind. You can look at your consciousness. You know, if you study yourself, you're going to, you're going to be amazed by, by yourself because we are all energetic beings. And if you um, follow your intuitive powers, you will be successful. And that's what I'm about today. And I'm going to be on your show again someday soon because I've got to end with this very unusual ending. I mean, do we have another minute? Yeah, absolutely. Everybody who's listening to us from today, you're going to be um, seeing the number 1111. Um, you're going to see it on watches, on clocks, in your cars, in your kitchens, in your computers. Just listen to this. John Kennedy, 11 letters. Bill Clinton, 11 letters. Jimmy Carter, 11 letters. Barack Obama, 11 letters. 
George W. Bush, 11 letters. Donald Trump, 11 letters. Joseph Biden, 11 letters. Jesus Christ, 11 letters. Isaac Newton, 11 letters. I mean, I can go on and on and on. You get me back on your show and we'll talk about the 11-11 phenomenon. Wonderful. Well, it's certainly something to look forward to, Yuri. Thank you so much for being with us. It was really a pleasure to talk to you again. And bless you all and a lot of love for me and a big hug all the way from the Holy Land where Jesus Christ walked. Right. And YuriGeller.com is the place to go to start with Yuri and become a citizen of his country. I did. And you can start with just a dollar. You could give a little more. I did. But a dollar will start you and get you your certificate. And who knows what may happen. I mean, it's Yuri Geller, right? Anything could happen. Thank you, Yuri, so much, and blessings of the season. Thank you. Have you ever read Communion? Or have you never read Communion? It's out in a new edition. Very powerful, a subtly new cover that reflects the fact that the visitors are now looking back at us because they truly are. You can get it from the unknowncountry.com store as a Kindle, as a beautiful, sumptuous paperback, or as an unabridged audiobook read by me. It's the first time in the whole life of communion that it has been read in full in audio format. And believe you me, I felt that reading. I put my life, my memories into it, and I trust you can hear it in the voice. I sure felt it while I was reading. So get communion, listen to it, read it. Communion is of central importance to all of our lives. And apparently a really, really extraordinary time. And I think we're going to talk about a lot of things over the next half hour. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, his interview with Gary Nolan and what's going on in that whole area, which is one of the, that was a, an incredible fade to black, by the way, Jimmy, I listened to fade to black and you should too, folks. It's uh, easy to find just Google fade to black and you're going to get there very quickly. Anyway, uh, tell us a little bit about the Egypt trip. And I know it was, you told me it was a great success. I was very envious. Yeah. E uh, happy holidays, everyone. And Whitley, thank you uh, uh, for uh, not only, you know, asking uh, if uh, I would come over and have a chat with you, which I will always do. But um, I think it's important uh, for everybody in the holidays and, and at this time of year, uh, you know, just to hang out with friends uh, like you and I are doing right now and family right. and, and enjoy these times because they're special and Life, life is short. So there you go. Um, but thank you. Uh, yeah, Egypt. Uh, let's let's jump uh, straight into that. Um, I have, uh, like you, um, I've I've done a lot of interviews. Uh, it's you know it's in the thousands, and and one of the things that I've always researched over the years was Egypt, and and I have a lot of you know I've had a fascination with it since since I was a kid, like all of us have. And, and I've had a lot of guests that are researchers and 
and and uh, have spent a lot of time there. I wanted to always get into people's heads about it. But when you finally get a, an opportunity to to go over and to see these not only the sites and the things that that have been in you know movies and videos and subjects of uh, conversation, um, when you see them for yourself, that that's uh, it's a mind numbing, uh, mind expanding uh, thing to go through. It, it's very tough to put into words. But then there's the other side. What 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 did I get out of Egypt? that I didn't expect. And uh, the first thing, and it was very profound, um, and I've unpacked it quite a bit since uh, my return, is uh, the people of Egypt. The people of Egypt are unbelievably cultured. And they've had 5,000 years uh, to uh, figure out how to treat people, how to treat friends, family, uh, neighbors, um, how to act, how to smile. And, and we here in the United States, obviously a country that's barely uh, 200 years old or, or how, whatever age you want to put on, we don't have that, that type of development. And it's an extraordinary thing. Uh, when you go to Egypt and you see the temples and you see the magnificence and the grace, it's, it's, it's everywhere in the age. But um, uh, it's the people of Egypt you know, that, that, that are so wonderful. And so, and I, I didn't expect that. I didn't know about it, you know, because we hear about these things. Um, so that's, that's the extraordinary, I can't wait to go back to Egypt, uh, not only for the, <laughs> for the temples and the great pyramid and, and Luxor and Karnak and, and Abu Simbel and Abydos and Kamambo and all of these magnificent places, but it's the people there too, as well. You know what you're going to, uh, an amazingly adult cultured, mature, uh, culture. It's, it's incredible. You told me off the air about a journey down deep into a tunnel at the end of which there was a lake. Mm -hmm. You tell us about that. Yeah. Uh, that happened on my birthday. And as a gift, a little thing, uh, Billy Carson uh, arranged uh, through uh, his contacts in Egypt uh, uh, some things. And so it, it, this took place in uh, um, uh, Dendera, which is out of all of, not, I shouldn't say out of all of, because they're all special, but Dendera is a remarkable place, and it's a feminine temple uh, for the divine feminine, and it's very well preserved. And it's they're all big, but this one is exceptionally large, and the colors are still there, and and the the paint and and things. So there's it's just a special place, and so they arranged uh, for us to go into a temple that hadn't been opened in 20 years uh, outside of the main temple. And, and we did that. Um, and then uh, we come out of that temple and the priest uh, comes up to me and says, I'm going to take you to an underground pharaonic lake. That's, that's Whitley. That's all he says. And, and, 
you know, I'm, I study, I study, I study language and what people say and what people speak and you're underground pharaonic lake when you're in the middle of the Sahara desert, right? Sand. Uh, you, you referred to him as a priest. Yes. What, 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 was, what kind of priest? I, I, he was the priest of the Dendera temple complex, uh, the caretaker there. And Are you saying that the Egyptian religion is still being practiced? Uh, that, you know, uh, I would say uh, they have a very, very profound, deep respect for these spiritual and sacred sites. Um, that is, I mean, Whitley, when somebody, you know, flowing robes, right? The grace. And yeah. it's just like, just like anything else, right? And he looks at you and says, no talking. This is a special sacred place. You go. <laughs> so that's what it was, you know? And so he says an underground pharaonic lake. And I immediately try to digest that, you know, what, what, you know, and I'm looking around, I don't see a lake. And he said underground and he said pharaonic and you tie all of those words together. And that's, that's extraordinary. Right. So we yeah. walk we walk across, uh, we're, we're in the back of the Dendera main temple, which in of itself, you know, it's six, seven stories tall. And I don't know how many hundreds of yards wide, you know, it's, it's, it's ginormous. It's a big, big stone structure. And, uh, so we're behind that and we're walking out. I don't see anything. Yeah. It's sand, right? And, uh, and as we're walking across, he points and, uh, and I see these three flat, uh, uh, red granite blocks and they're lying on their sides and there's three of them. There's two side by side like this and then one on the top, right? Uh, and they're lying flat. So I see those and we're walking in that direction. Don't know. As we come up to it, I see it. Between the two stones that are lying flat, like the uh, my hands are backwards, that are lying flat are these stairs uh, descending into the sand under the ground. And I'm thinking underground pharaonic lake. So he tells me as we're walking up to this, he said, this is where the pharaohs would go to cleanse spiritually. <laughs> Whitley, I swear, you're, you're, you're just trying to understand, and you don't, you don't, you just don't, you don't, you don't understand. Rain bending. Yeah, yeah, completely. Yeah. Completely. So we walk up, and I see the stairs descending into the darkness, and he turns to me. I'm up front, you know, I'm, I'm leading this thing. I'm first, have no idea what's going on, and he says, okay. And he, I'm, I'm video, right? I'm shooting video, and he points at me in the video, uh, which I can show you show you later. I can share it with you. Maybe you can insert it into this. It, it doesn't matter. Um, he points at me to stop filming, so I shut off. And then he, uh, so that's the end of the video. But you can see us walking up to the entrance and, and things. It's it's pretty 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 crazy. He says, "Take off your shoes." <laughs> 
no problem. And uh, that's it. We start descending these stairs into, uh, you can't see the bottom. Um, oh, he, he tells us that we can't talk. There'll be no speaking, uh, no technology. He says that. And uh, we, we walk. I'm, I'm barefoot. Up top, it's 100, 110 degrees, baking sun in the Sahara. And, and we just descend, descend. And we go down. I was told later um, it was five stories underground, so 50 feet. I, I, it seemed much deeper than that, but, but five stories is five stories, five sets of stairs or whatever you want to say, uh, stone. Um, very, very long uh, uh, dissension. And, and so we get, as we get about halfway down this, um, and I, I, I apologize for me uh, being so extended with this, but it was just, it was extraordinary is, uh, uh, the stone started to get cool compared to the heat from up top. They were getting really cool and continued down and, uh, they started to get damp. I felt that. And then we got to the bottom. I could hear the water. I can't see anything, uh, uh, but I could hear it. Uh, crazy, crazy feeling. And so then anyway, um, the priest uh, lights a candle and he holds it out. Um, and, and he's behind me. He's got his hand on my shoulder. And Jimmy, our tour guide, is in front and he goes out into this water. And and, <laughs> and he's like knee deep and he's splashing it up in the air. I can only see his back. I can't see in front of him. I can't see anything. But he's splashing this water and uh, just drop. And, um, and he comes back and he whispers in my ear. We're not allowed to talk. It's very quiet, dark. He goes, it's all yours. <laughs> And, uh, whoa, so I'm, you know, and I, I was in shorts, um, uh, and I'm barefoot. So I, I wade out into the water, wade, wade in the water. Right. And, uh, did the same thing he did splash, 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 splash. And I drenched myself. I mean, I'm in the white's cool too. It's not ice cold, but it's, it's like cool, fresh water. And, <laughs> And so I come out after a few minutes of this and I start walking up the steps and, and, and I got like 10 steps up and I grab the wall. I put my hand on the wall and, and steady myself. I'm on, I, you know, I can't see it's dark and, um, I'm like, what's going on? And I take a couple of steps up, and I'm I'm holding on to the wall, by the way. And um, and my there's no other way to explain it. And it, oh man, so I I I make it up, but I don't want to I don't want to let go of what's happening, right? I want to keep it. Jimmy, can you describe it a little bit more deeply? Because, I mean, I can it was sort of something like exploding in your head or. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, you know, if I explained it, uh, it was like 
the cartoon of the Beatles, Yellow Submarine or something. I just, it was like, you know, the, the rainbows and, and colors and, 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 and this, this thing. But, but I could see the shapes of stuff I, I, uh, around me. And, uh, I, I, you know, it was, but it was intense. That's, that's the thing. It came on very, very strong, very, very fast. And, uh, I didn't expect it. Nobody was telling me, nobody was giving me instructions. I, I didn't have an assistant with me, a fellow shaman that was going to go, okay, now this is going to happen. Your head's going to explode. No, nobody. Um, so I was just dealing with this on my own. I make it up top. I come out into the sunlight and that was, uh, this poof. And now after I get back, um, I, I, I I talked to a few friends of mine and I recounted uh, this experience with them. And as we started to, everybody's had the same kind of comments. And, and what I got from that was a modern context, a modern way of looking at all of this. Uh, melatonin to serotonin changes, temperature changes in the body, light to dark, dark to light, uh, the the water, the the the, uh, the electronic components of the brain that are being shifted, your pineal gland open, DMT released. It was adrenaline, right? This modern approach to figuring out uh, this process that that happened to me. So I heard all of that. That's when it kind of hit me. The Egyptians knew this 5,000 years ago. Yeah. And that's where the, when, when the priest said, this is where the pharaohs went to cleanse spiritually. Well, okay. Right? The, the temperature change from the heat to the coolness, that's dramatic. And then you go from cool to hot, right? You go from intense light, right? It's the Sahara, the sun, yep. to darkness, right. back to light. So you have that melatonin, serotonin change in your brain. You had that, the, the pineal gland release, uh, probably caused from adrenaline, the shock to the body, the shock to the system. Um, and many cultures, as you know, um, all practice some form of this around the world. You know, when when you think about uh, the indigenous cultures of, of North America, you know, sending out, you know, young men, boys on a journey, right? And they, they have to go to the mountaintop and then come yeah. back. Um, and, and this is, uh, it seems like every culture has their own version of this, some type of, uh, I don't want to use the word baptism, but... But sometimes you do, right? And is this is this uh, something that the ancients knew, and they they understood the profound changes, and maybe they even you know the shock to the system, um, and maybe they even how do I say this? How do I say this? Uh, maybe they even knew the advanced sides of it too as well that. We don't give them enough credit for it. Maybe in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. In a different, but also very viable way. So 
obviously, folks, his trip to Egypt was a mega experience. Mm. Uh, incredible. It happened to me a few times. That's the other thing. When you have an uninitiated soul, right, like me, that um, wants to, I have an open mind, I want to explore, I have questions that need to be answered, I'm not closed down. But I don't, uh, like Whitley, you meditate every day, and you understand the processes of meditation and where, uh, how to get there, what to do, and so forth. I don't do that. And so the the changes and the things and the elevated uh, conscious uh, places that you go to, right? I, I I no, I don't. So this stuff is happening to me uh, quite by accident. It's real, and I don't necessarily know how to deal with it. Somebody like yourself would stop in the moment and and understand and probably know how to capture it and to stay well, there and extend it. understand. That would be pushing it away. Just let it happen. Right, right, right. Yeah, you know, it's just let it happen. Uh, and, you know, it's calling you, Jimmy. The higher level of reality is calling you and saying, hey, Jimmy, uh, uh, you can come. We're doors open, man. So <laughs> don't forget what you learned there. I, I I have asked many people, and I'll say that I'm, I'm saying this to you, Whitley, because I'm taking your butt to Egypt. All right, so you're yeah, going. Right. Yeah, you don't have a choice. So, but this is the thing. I have asked so many people what what's your what's your temple site? Where's your sacred place in Egypt? Was there something that? And I heard over and over again. Now nah, it's not just one place, uh, but there are now. The, I understand that now because I had it happen uh, in different forms in in different locations around the country, and you're going to go through the same thing. You're gonna you're gonna be at a site. You're gonna be somewhere, maybe by yourself. You're gonna wander off, and later you're gonna go, Jimmy, 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 come here, come here, man. <laughs> you know, I had a dream about a site called the Osirian. Yes, which is the uh, it's a it's a sort of a baptismal uh, giant and one of the oldest possibly the oldest structure in Egypt. It's very old, and uh, in this dream, it was it involved water and involved exactly what you experienced underground, splashing yourself with water from the Osirian, and I was with these people I couldn't see who were kind of behind me and I could hear them splashing in the water and I tried to turn around and I couldn't turn around and I was led to understand, and this was a dream. This is not sort of one of my UFO like related experiences that when, when we first came here, we, joined the earth by washing ourselves in her waters. And this is where we did it. Hmm. And that I, so I, that would be one I would like to see the, um, that I hate using the word. Um, it's when I'm connecting thought the Assyrian 
which has been, uh, in, oh, I'm talking about Orthodox Egyptology, related to and connected to Seti I, and it's not. Seti I temple is next to uh, the Assyrian, and so because of that geographic relationship, they're saying that that must be, you know, built in that time period, and it's not. It's actually 150 feet uh, below, and you can see the sediment that's built up above it and on top of it, and there is no dating uh, for it. Uh, some of the biggest megalithic uh, construction in the world outside of uh, Baalbek, uh, Lebanon, uh, is there. Those are some of the biggest blocks. Uh, it's a very deep uh, it, it's flooded all the time, and and was it was it a giant pool? I uh, don't know the entrance into it. Um, I haven't been there. That's on my list uh, for visiting next year. We'll you're go gonna, together. You're you're going to be with me, and absolutely, I, I sure am. We can experience that uh, together for the first time. Absolutely, that would be wonderful. Listen, let's go on because we've got a lot to talk about at this, the end of the year. And there's something that I think I, that I really worry about, and that is, first, the delays that is taking place in the releases that were supposed to happen from the Pentagon. It's not, they're not happening, and I think they won't happen. Uh, or if they do happen, they'll be inconsequential. And I base that on the fact that there is a faction in the Pentagon. And, I, you know, I'm going to bring this up with Linda, too. We're, I'm talking to Linda next, and I'm going to bring this up with her, too, because she's going to have some things to say about it uh, that does not want this to happen. They do not want this to get out. And you see it in, in news stories. Like there was this thing in the Wall Street Journal where this pilot, I've been a pilot for 40 years. I've flown U-2s, meaning he's an Air Force guy. Uh, and I've never seen a UFO, and I don't know any pilots who've ever seen UFOs. They don't even exist. They printed that, forgetting that the first UFO ever recorded was recorded by a pilot while he was flying his plane in 1947. Right. So, you know, they're trying to kill this. And I will never forget, I will never forget, when crop circles were beginning to be seen as a real mystery. Suddenly, the Doug and Dave story came on. Total childish nonsense. Mm -hmm. And later, they were found to be connected to the Central Intelligence Agency. Mm -hmm. And I just have a huge question here. Why? Who wants to choke all of these mysteries off? And it goes right back. I'll tell you where this takes me. It takes me right back down that stairway into that pharaonic lake and splashing the water on you and feeling the power of the mystery of the spirit. They don't want that. And all of this, the crop circles, UFO disclosure, what happened to you in the depths of the earth is connected somehow. And now what I'm going to do is I'm just going to leave you with that and put you on, on all by yourself and you can riff on it or we can, <laughs> We can well, do back and forth, whatever you prefer. Yeah. Let's do back and forth. It'll be a little let's, easier. Let's How do you react to all of that? Yeah, you know, Whitley, um, I think that it got out of control. 
the the subject they didn't expect the media uh to grab onto this like they did i don't think that they expected the response from the world i don't think that they expected uh avi Loeb uh, to be speaking about this you brought up uh dr gary nolan he's from stanford so you've got harvard and stanford uh, uh the web telescope uh, the discoveries of exoplanets all of these things happened. It was completely out of the man's control. Who's who has been in, in total grips of this since 1947? So that being said, how do you pull it back in? As they were thinking about and attempting to pull it back in, the UAP task force report comes out last August, and and when that report came out, it clearly said. We don't know what's going on. It's not us. It's not Russia. It's not China. It's not adversarial. We have this other bin that we're going to lump everything into, and we're going to try to figure this out. The, the new version of the story, uh, which they had a meeting uh, uh, on Friday uh, about this, a Moultrie was there, and and uh, discussing this uh, uh, phenomena. And there, it, it's a complete about face from the report that was written and released just last year. Is that the delay uh, for the report now that was due on Halloween, October 31st? Right. I, I, if you're going to have a complete about face where just, you know, uh, barely a year ago, where you say, we don't know what's going on. It's not us. It's not Russia. It's not China. And you're going to do this complete flip-flop and now say, it is Russia. It is China. It's yeah, but it's not. It's you not. And it can't be. Because, I mean, the Twining memo proves that. Russia and China didn't have this stuff in 1947 when that memo was written. And they didn't have it in 2004 in the Nimitz encounter, right? And they don't have it now because for the simple reason that nobody has anything that can move that fast at all, let alone a power source that can enable something to... One of those devices goes down into the in the gimbal radar, goes down from thirty thousand feet into the Pacific Ocean, into the ocean in a matter of seconds. I mean, the Atlantic, in a less of than a second, less than a second. Yes. And so, what is going on with these people? I, you know, I, I, I think to myself, there's a larger force here, something bigger than all of us. And it's maybe it's inside us to some extent, maybe it's from the outside, but it wants to keep us thinking small. And that worries me because in order to save ourselves on planet Earth, we got to think big. We got to think way outside of the box. When they do a flip-flop like this, I'm talking about the Department of Defense and ODNI and the Pentagon in Washington, D.C., you do a flip-flop like this, clearly you're, you're not in control. You're, you are, this is something that is, is something that uh, not only that you are not in control of, and I'm talking about ET and technology, that is beyond that, but the people want to know. And you're not in control of that. And we have uh, a very determined uh, way of pursuing things. And right now, 
we've got the scent, and we're not going to let this go. By just coming out and saying, eh, it's a, it's a big nothing burger. No, no, that's, and it, it's a flip-flop, and that raises the bigger questions. Well, you know, I remember what, what uh, the visitors said. It, it's a new world. It will be a new world if you can take it. And part of taking it is getting it out of the hands of the people who don't want us to know the truth. And we got to do that. We got to keep fighting. And we're also coming to the end of our time together. I promised you half an hour. I know you're a busy man. You got to have another cup of coffee and a nice nap and uh, <laughs> hang out in the backyard for a while. Uh, in any case, um, I'm just going to tell everybody, uh, Whitley uh, and I talk a lot, but we're also going to hang out for the holidays a little bit and we'll, we'll keep you guys posted and, and well, well, yeah, but this is, remember, this is uh, after the show we're going to do, we're going to do a show tomorrow night. We're doing this show on Tuesday right now. Yes. uh, Christmas week. And Jimmy and I are going to be together on uh, fade to black tomorrow night where I'm going to be talking about my new book and why it is going to blow the cover off everything. It will, the world will not be the same after this is published. Yeah. Whitley, uh, can I throw you under the bus a little bit? Whitley, Whitley and I are talking, (laughs) Whitley and I are talking a few months ago. We talk a lot. We, we do. Um, and, uh, he goes, man, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go right. And I said, well, Whitley, well, I mean, what about our friendship? What about us hanging out? No, 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 no. I've got to get this book done. And uh, I'm going to go right. I'm going to do what writers do. He means W-R-I-T-E, not R-I-G-H-T. Okay. It's not political. He's not talking about politics. He, he wasn't taking a right-hand turn. And and I've always been jealous of that, Whitley. Uh, just let me ask you this, and then and then we can wrap this up. Um, the the process that an author goes through and a writer goes through, the discipline to get a book done, I am completely jealous of. And I don't know if I, I there's a book in me. I just don't know if I can get it out of me. But writers go and do that. Is that the most enjoyable experience to go for three, four, five, six months and and just get it done? Uh, it, the blank page is the most dangerous thing in the world, and you you see the blank page every morning. You wake up and you get started. You have tea. You do what Anne used to call toaster polishing, which is bullshitting around and fooling around with your stuff. And, you know, and then finally you face it, the blank page, and you think, oh, no. And you start writing. That's how it works for me. And, okay, okay. so you get, let's say you get a page, your first page in the morning, right? You get that done. Do you go and and rewrite uh, the first few lines? <laughs> no, I I will write straight through, and the rewriting all comes later. Okay, uh, all right. Generally, and, and there's a lot of rewriting, but you know, this time, I there's a lot of crap going down in this apartment. Weird stuff is happening in here. My listeners know all about it already. I'm not going to go through the song and dance, except to say, 
that it's obvious that if you feel like people you can't see are coming into your apartment and doing things with you that you can't remember, you're going to have a hard time living there and you're going to have a really hard time writing with this kind of stuff. So I went to, I moved, I basically moved. I went to England. I did not go to a fancy place. I went to a little town in Sussex and I have friends there and I basically sat at their kitchen table mm. with the kids running around, the dogs capering around, everybody coming, going, music playing. And I wrote in the middle of this wonderful warm home uh, with all the life of the household going on around me. And I finished my book that way. I didn't it was want a to, very happy experience. See, I didn't want to tell everybody you went to England. I'm, I'm glad that, uh, that you said that. It, did, did you... Did you write in an English accent? Right. <laughs> I, I just wrote. I was just in a in a place where I felt safe. I do not feel safe where I live. Man, and I man. can't afford to move either. Anyway, what's the point? If I move six months later or probably sooner, this is all going to come back into my life again, one way or another. You should. I got an extra room here. You know that we could be roomies. Well. <laughs> I don't know about that. You, I'm not sure you'd like that because uh, you live too near. The you live too near something that that yeah. would really like me to have. No, no, I can't. I can't live in your house. <laughs> hey, Whitley. Yes, happy sir. holidays, my friend. Happy holidays to you and folks. Next up, Linda Moulton Howe, and I'm. I cannot imagine what we're going to talk about, but I'm on a roll right now because talking to Jimmy Church. If you're not on a roll after you talk to Jimmy Church, you're not alive. That was so cool, Jimmy. I want to thank you. And man, am I pumped to go to Egypt with you. It is going to be terrific. Uh, fade Absolutely. to black, folks. Do not miss it. It is the best. Did we misunderstand the teaching of Jesus? Perhaps a long time ago, perhaps almost as soon as he rose from the dead, we mistook him for something that he may not have been. But we do know one thing. He was one of us. His life and his resurrection reveal the power of the good in all of us, and his teaching shows anybody, whether they have religious beliefs or not, how to find that goodness and live it. Get Jesus a new vision. It's available as an audiobook. It is available as a paperback and as a Kindle. Get it today. Next up, Linda Moulton Howe is with us uh, for one of our Great conversations. I do not know anyone I have more fun with on the radio than Linda, going way back to the Art Bell days when when we got going on coast to coast. We had a blast. Welcome to Dreamland, Linda, on our year-end show. Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you, dear Whitley, and to all of your listeners around the planet. Uh, I think it is nice to feel these days that enough is at least being discussed by the government that we feel like we are current 
now and not uh, shun it aside as a subject? Well, exactly. We are we are not shunted aside, but there is something way off. Uh, I don't know if you saw it uh, recently, but there was an article in the New York Times by Julian Barnes, uh, basically debunking the the videos that have been released. And the interesting thing about this article was it had no sourcing whatsoever. Yes. The only sourcing was, quote, Pentagon officials. I read it. And yet you, you read it. I read well, it. I, I, that worried me. And Whitley, my immediate reaction was, this is a counterpoint action by Moultrie and the group in the Pentagon who disagree with actually telling the truth, while outside of the Pentagon there are people who have had power and they think that it is way past time we should have this, at least the headline that we're not the only biological intelligence in the universe. They know that. And to me, that's exactly why that was such a strange article. It was not sourced. It was not normal journalism. It was as if somebody in the Pentagon called up and said, we want to diffuse public interest in UFO videos. You know, back in the day, uh, Philip Class was the editor of Aviation Week and Space Technology, and he told me in so many words when we were first getting to know each other, and he still thought I would come down on side, that basically he got help from the Air Force in scoops about secret aircraft and so forth, in return for his UFO work. And I just had to think when I saw that, that Julian Barnes has made the same, a similar trade. And <laughs> it, it's very concerning. Yes. And yet, on the other hand, just announced recently, Barack and Michelle Obama's production company is going to produce a show about Betty and Barney Hill for Netflix which is a good step because I think yeah. that they are on the side with us that feel that the truth really is way past due. And the the very fact that Julian Barnes and class would even be in the same category in our minds is an indication that part of the chess game that is going on in the United States and the rest of the world now are those that are, in some cases, paid for somebody in the Pentagon to call them in the alleged media in order to put out a debunking story because they are people in the Pentagon who are fighting telling the truth, as they have for the last 80-some years since World War II. And so we've got a skirmish going on yet again in the Pentagon, exactly as Philip J. Corso said in his really important book, The Day After Roswell, he called really, it really important he, book. Yes, he called it internecine warfare in the Pentagon during the Eisenhower administration. And it's still going on. Yeah. You know, when I saw that the Obamas were behind the Betty and Barney Hill documentary, I thought to myself, I remembered uh, John Podesta's regret 
in February after the end of the Obama administration saying the one thing he regretted most is not releasing the UFO files. And I thought to myself, I'll bet Obama regrets the same thing. Right. But why didn't he? Why? Right. What is the core reason for this extraordinary reticence about what is, after all, not even going to be, it's only going to be big news to sort of the intellectuals and the deniers and the academics and the scientists who pretend this isn't happening. But Whitley? But the average person isn't going to be surprised that visitors are here, aliens are here at all. I think the answer to the question about why wouldn't Obama have opened up is because he was never, ever exposed to the whole huge, complex hall of mirrors with a quicksand floor that is the UFO phenomenon. Never. And what I'm saying is that not every president, probably most, have never been given the kind of briefing that we would assume that a president would be because JSOC and others who have been in control of this difficult subject since World War II, as they evolved, as the uh, CIA came into existence in September of 1947, along with MJ-12, to be followed a couple of years later by the National Security Agency, to be followed after that by the Defense Intelligence Agency, and today we have 17 known public agencies. There are so many layers that are not known that are uh, uh, strategic and special access programs. And that MJ-12 was the first blow across, I guess you would say, uh, the deck that there was going to be a classification magic. If you don't have magic, you're not going to have access to the whole story. And what is the reason here for all this secrecy, Linda? That there are hostile enemies. Hostile enemies think, of Earth I, I, and I hostile think. enemies of tall whites and hostile enemies of Nordics and the list goes on and on. It has to do with advanced intelligence that can do bad things and that we have always been looking for allies. And I really do think it's that uh, bottom line, that not everything is friendly and peaceful. Do you recall a, a, uh, an MRI scan that appeared very briefly on the, uh, on the uh, website of the company controlled by Hal Pudoff? Uh, and it showed a badly damaged brain and information indicating that there had been, that this person had, had died after, uh, the pilot who had died after some kind of uh, exposure, and there was an implication that this was not the only one, and then it disappeared, but it was captured by somebody. Uh, who, who, it's still on the internet. It's tied directly into terahertz frequency exposure in the presence of UFOs that was discussed in the, uh, the big UK release, uh, the Condon report. The Condon yeah. report. And that, reading that with John Burroughs and talking about it and knowing that 
one of the things that John has talked about with people who study the UFO phenomena in the government is that terahertz frequencies can do damage to any of the uh, organs of the human body, such as the heart, that have some kind of empty chambers that can vibrate and that they have associated and the brain might be included. And that the very fact that the Condine Report has an illustration of how far the male in the illustration is from the UFO determines how much damage they will have from the terahertz frequencies emitted from the UFOs. And that even ended up, that kind of information was in a University of Rochester uh, a research project that apparently the government asked uh, Rochester to do. And this that goes back a long time, decades ago. And that means, Whitley, it wasn't just 1980 RAF Bentwaters. They have known going all the way back, probably not very long after the crashes in Roswell, that the craft could be brought down with microwaves, but that they were dealing also with emissions from UFOs that could damage humans. Is the secret perhaps that we are in a low-level conflict? In other words, I say low-level by the fact that it never becomes, or at least very rarely becomes observable to the public that we are in this state of low-level conflict and we really can't control it because we're essentially defensive. And the reason would be that we can't have any access to the supply lines of whoever is aggressive, being aggressive against us, if they are being aggressive. Well, it reminds, is that the secret? Well, it reminds me of Len Stringfield. We uh, were speakers at a conference and this would go back probably to the 80s and wherever the conference was it was not far from his home and he invited me to come over and he opened up some of his file drawers and he took out typed and handwritten letters uh, from people who he some of them he said were sources that were confidential to him coming from inside our own government and then I remember he looked at me uh, very sternly and he said, Linda, I know firsthand from having been in the Air Force that we had a standing order to shoot down UFOs and we lost so many pilots. And the saddest thing is none of the families were ever told the truth. That's a quote. I've never forgotten that standing it. Order? That's what I want to know. I understand the question you're asking, and it implies that something in the UFO UAP category had to have shot us out of the skies. Yeah, but the point is this. If we're in a conflict, first of all, if I can well understand the unwillingness of the Pentagon to admit this, if they've gotten us, us into secretly into a conflict with extraterrestrials, that would be something that would be extremely concerning to the public and the political world, to say the least. And especially because there's no, 
there's no apparent reason for it. But what if there is a reason, Linda? What would that might reason be? Well, the second big category that I think goes on between our government and whatever intelligences we have any kind of communication with is this planet is harvested for sperm, for eggs, for fluids that come out of animals in two categories that serve the extraterrestrial intelligences. One is sustenance, and the other is the need for genetic material from this planet in order to create body containers in which the ETs act on this planet as camouflage has been described to me as one answer. Others that don't need a biological container that use holographic advanced technology appear to be in the category that use materials from planet Earth for sustenance. Now, who is using sustenance from Earth and who wants genetic material? I think there is also a third group. They are harvesting from this planet for both sustenance and genetic manipulation. And when you come to this big playing field, I think it's the most sensitive because the government does not want to admit that they know that sperm and eggs from humans have been harvested and are being used to create hybrids. Well, you know, you're talking to someone who had sperm harvested and something of being of that of the cigarette smoking boy, as I now call him, showed up in our woods behind our house and followed us when we moved to Texas in the, in the mid-90s. And so as far as I'm concerned, you're talking about a real physical truth that I personally am witness to. Yeah. I don't know if there's a connection between the harvesting of semen from my body and that boy, but it haunts me, Linda. You cannot imagine. Well, let me add. Me. <clears throat> let me add a um, important postscript. Also, uh, Leo Sprinkle worked with me greatly on my documentary, A Strange Harvest, about animal mutilations, and I started working with him in 1979, and. At, that was only five years after the famous Carl Higdon case. <clears throat> Sorry. And Carl Higdon had uh, been in the north, it was sort of the northwestern edge of Medicine Bow uh, National Park, south of Rollins. He liked to hunt. He was good. And he remembered in Later on, when he was doing hypnosis with Leo, he remembered, though, without hypnosis, that he brought up his rifle to aim at an elk. And the elk was uh, something like 50, 75, 100 feet away. And he's aimed at the elk, pulls the trigger. And from his point of view, Carl Higdon could watch the bullet leave his rifle, stay in the air, meaning that he was seeing the bullet, and it went out approximately 50 feet from the end of his rifle, and he saw it stop as if it had hit something that was clear, 
transparent in the air and it dropped to the ground. What follows is an extraordinary abduction case in which Carl finds himself in a craft of some sort and knows that it is something that he has been somehow removed from staring down his rifle into something that was phantasmagoria to him. And in front of him is a being that doesn't fit any category that any of us know, I believe, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It is a very strange being. Instead of hair, it seems to have like thick wire that goes out very straight from the head. It is wearing a very black, black garment that is totally tight fitting to the torso. The right hand and arm, when this being raises, Carl Higdon says he sees what looks like a cone at the end where the right hand would be in a person. The suit on this other being was very black, black, extending down the arms on the right arm. Carl was puzzled by the fact that he was not looking at a hand like a human. It looked like technology in the shape of a cone. And he watched this being before he was in the craft take the arm and point at his truck where he had stopped and was shooting at the elk. The being extended that arm and that cone cone right at Carl Higdon's truck and he watched the truck disappear in front of his eyes and then the next thing he's inside of this craft with this same being and the being is communicating with Carl only telepathically and Carl hears these words I will put you back close meaning to the truck maybe two miles away, as if two miles was close. He hears that two miles. And then in his mind, he hears, you are not what we wanted or need. Quote, unquote. It's in the original hypnosis session. And what Leo stressed with me is, Carl Higdon, years before, had had a vasectomy. And that would mean that he did not have active conduit for expulsion of sperm. Of course, that would make perfect sense why they didn't want or need him. Exactly. And those words are kind of a haunting insight into this whole strange dynamic between some of the non-humans and Earth, not just now, not just the 20th and 21st century. This is millions of years, that Earth has been in play with a variety of extraterrestrial groups that harvest from our planet, have bases on our planet. Our government began to catch on to this after World War II. And I think you add all of this together, the fact that there are unfriendlies as well as friendlies and neutrals that there is harvest of sperm and eggs from this planet, and it's been going on for centuries, and that a case like Carl Higdon gives us a sudden insight when you put two plus two equals four together. They're looking for sperm, and he had a vasectomy years earlier. 
And these are the kinds of dots in the Pointillisme, Whitley, that I think that the government wishes that all they had to do was hand out five or six of the dots, of which there are a million in this Pointillisme of the UFO phenomena and Earth. And because they can't just keep it to six tiny dots, I think that's why some of the people in the Pentagon and JSOC and others, they just feel like, close it down, don't open anything. And you and I and others look at that and say, if we're going to continue to be any kind of a democracy at all, if we're going to be any kind of a government of, by, and for the people, we are way overdue to be told the most significant truth that any humans could ever hear. We're not alone in this universe. There are all kinds of other consciousnesses and beings and that our government knows that this whole planet has been interacted with and harvested by extraterrestrial intelligences literally for thousands, if not millions of years. Here is a question. I can understand the public readily accepting the idea that there are others here. But <laughs> when you look at the Carl Higdon case and you look at all of the women who have lost eggs and the men who have had sperm extracted and the possibility, I would say the probability that there are hybrids here or something made from that material that have different properties than the normal people, like that boy I referred to could read minds very easily, and that was how he functioned. He couldn't, he could not speak, or he never made us articulated speech to us. It was always just grunting. Uh, so, how would they handle that? I can under, I can well understand the reticence of the Pentagon. To say, having to say that they are taking your eggs, they are taking your semen, and they are doing what with them we do not know, and we can't stop it. My an- I don't I don't see how they could say that. My answer is not telling the whole world the truth does not stop abductions and the creation of hybrids. In fact, all of the secrecy by power brokers for millennia increases the likelihood that humans continue to keep all of this secret to themselves and their families, and they're not talking with each other. If the whole planet gets the whole honest headline, I think then that might make it difficult for the extraterrestrials to take people so easily. And there was a statistic a year ago. I'm not saying that this is on a document that was stamped and I knew for sure But this was something I was told a year ago, that the current estimate by the Central Intelligence Agency is that there are 30 million hybrids, extraterrestrial and homo sapiens sapien, alive on this planet now. Well, this is my question then. Why don't they just take it over? Because if they can all read minds like the ones I've been close to can, uh, they would seem to have completely ultimate power. And yet... I will also say that the ones I have been close to live like, like uh, almost like street people. So what is, could be going on there? Are they not 
intact mentally somehow. They have these powers, but they're not playing with a full deck, as we used to say in the old days. Well, what comes to my mind immediately is if the aerospace and military sources that have been correct on several things over the last five years of two that I get occasional insights, we are at a crossroads. On the other side of the intersection right now at the end of 2022 are two possibilities. One is telling the whole planet at the same time using the James Webb telescope we have found biological signature on another planet. The fourth in the uh, TRAPPIST-1 system is the one I hear the most. It is allegedly a watery planet, very much like Earth, the fourth from the sun in the TRAPPIST. They, f- they feel that if they could keep it long distance, we have found other biological signatures. It's 40 light years from Earth. There's nothing to be concerned about, but now we're going to learn a lot about the universe and that they could do all of this through the lens of making contact with an intelligence far enough away that when they make announcements of what they've learned, even if it is feeding in information from all of the past centuries that we have been learning from since World War II in our dealings with extraterrestrials that they could hold off shock. And I feel, and the sources that have talked with me, they feel that that is not understanding the situation, that we have to get past shock. We have to get past being able to discuss other intelligences in an open forum way on the planet for the planet to get healthy. And that part of that standing in the wings might be the tall whites and the Nordics who have allegedly been helping us when Eshed, Haim Eshed in Israel released his book a couple of uh, Christmases ago. And he said, it's not humans that are holding back this truth it's the ETs themselves who don't think humans are ready. There's, well, I've heard that too. Yeah. I, 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 that, in, in fact, my new book, Them, that's the core thesis that they have manipulated us in such a way, manipulated our, our government and our military in such a way that they have to keep the secret. But they, and, and, and that they orchestrated it from the beginning. But the argument against all of that, from what I've been learning just in the last five years, is if we could be introduced to other life in the universe, honestly, that there are friendlies, there are neutrals, and there are hostiles, and that we are very, and that we are very fortunate on Earth to have working with us neutrals and friendlies, and that we can stand in front of you. I'm meaning all of the government and military, we can stand in front of you and tell you that now we are making this announcement because we have allies. They are friendly. They have proven themselves. And we want you to know they are here to help us, 
But we humans have got to learn to stand on our own two feet in this universe. And that is what they are trying to help us with as well. The enemies, the hostiles, can be on this planet and look human. The Nordics and the tall whites know how to separate. They know how and exactly who is human and who is not. These are the kinds of issues that we need help with. You do not have to be in fear. What we now need to do is move forward, educating everybody about the various intelligences and what we know about their intents in the future, and especially what we know about their roles on this planet in the ancient past. If we could do that, if we can bring all 8 billion people up to speed, we will mentally, as a planet, be stronger than we've ever been in fending off the hostiles. Well, that's beautifully said, and I think that that is a that is absolutely true. And I, you know, I I go back to the abduction experience, and again and again in the abduction experience, people are surprised. They are not expecting anything like this to happen at all. Like me, I mean, I sure as I didn't have any idea anything like that could happen, and then suddenly it had happened. If people knew that this could happen. That alone would change everything, I think. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think that the ones doing the abducting probably know that, and they don't want that. Right. They do not want it. They, want, they need us to be helpless and surprised and to not fight back. Um, and I didn't know what was going on. I didn't fight back at all. I mean, I screamed and thrashed around, but I, I, I had no organized response to what was going on. I... I spent half the time trying to figure out whether or not it was a nightmare, frankly. And I remember at the end of the uh, 1980s, right before communion came out, um, there was an abductee that you knew who arranged uh, for me to come from where I was working in New York at the time at UNICEF. And uh, I was out at your uh, woods, the cabin, the cabin yeah. and Accord, New York. And uh and I remember you took me on a tour of where you had encountered the greys actually in the forest. And I still can remember right now the palpable fear that you were generating and that I, for the very first time in my life, even though I had been doing so much work in animal mutilations, I was never operating in fear of anything for some reason. But when I was standing there in that forest and you were telling me about the destabilizing, de the completely uh, where you felt like you would never, ever survive the fear. Recently, in my Earth Files YouTube channel, I did an interview with a man that is only known as Tim from Germany, who uh, Gaia uh, has been doing a series with him and me called Truth Hunter. And that eight-part series was made from two days of long, huge discussions between Tim from Germany, allegedly working for a very secret, covert German operation that is working directly with 
Grays. And this is the important part to link back to you in the end of the 80s at your uh, place in Accord, New York. I asked Tim, what was it like in the first face-to-face meeting that was organized for you to meet the Grays? And he said, traumatizing, terrifying. And he said, I never, ever got past feeling terror and trauma with them, ever. And I I guess I just wanted to ask you, what do you think it is that some of the ETs give off, in this case, the grays, that is so terrifying to humans? Well, you know, it's a very interesting question, because if you think about it, we don't actually there's no such thing as a fear ray or a happiness ray in our world. I mean, you can't point something at somebody and cause them to change their mood, but they can do that. And they can exude it uh, like off their bodies, I think, uh, because uh, you can, because they can turn it off. I mean, I've known people who were with them who were, it was a completely neutral experience. They weren't, they weren't afraid and they weren't, overawed or anything and it was a, a but but other people will be with them and they just are hit like i was hit there and like he was hit with this absolutely palpable wall of fear i think it's a defense mechanism i think they're scared and when they're scared they do this hmm. i think it's probably just instinct nature like a blowfish blowing up when it's when it feels threatened but what is or, funny is Tim said, he, it, and I'm just sharing what he has said and has said on the record and is in our eight-part series, uh, how do we prove any of this? We don't have evidentiary material, but we have to believe that some of the people who are trying to t- talk to us are trying to tell the truth because they feel it's important. Okay, so this is the interesting other part. Tim said that he's had many meetings many with the same gray being and even when and he said this i know they don't want me harmed in any way linda i know they will not harm me and yet i can never get past the trauma and the fear well that sheds a different light on it then because if it's not a if it's just the way they are then you know, I've, I haven't had nearly that much contact with them, but it has always been fairly traumatic, except for one or two times. So, and I, maybe it's just something about the way they are, or it could be, I think that those big eyes are so intimidating and they sort of look into your soul and, you know, they make you feel very uncomfortable. I guess we just, you know, we're like two species that are sort of not tame to each other. We're just not used to each other. Right. The real alien frequency. <laughs> right. Exactly. Because when you go out in the wild, most animals are terrified of you. And they they can't be changed. Well, let me tell you. long, careful effort. And even then, if it's an adult, in like an adult deer or something, or an elk, or uh, or say a mountain lion, you're never really going to tame it. Right, and uh, let me share two other 
perspectives on this, this may be actually one of the keys to why the government hasn't opened it up, not that we're threatened, but that we they don't feel we could handle the frequency. Jim Sparks, uh, God rest him, wherever he is, he wrote a book called The Keepers. He worked with me on a big chapter in my book, Glimpses of Other, Other Realities, Volume 2, High Strangeness, in which he did illustrations and told this amazing story of working with and interacting with greys that wanted him, Jim, to be on their craft to learn their language, to learn their number symbols, and that he felt like a student. And in that context, as a student, nothing threatening, he said, I could feel the gray who was real. And Jim separated them out long ago at the end of the 80s into those that were real biological and scared him to death and those that were artificial intelligence he understood there was a tremendous difference between the beings and that, yeah, he, that he said i could feel we'll call him the power gray coming linda from i have no idea how long i just knew when it was coming to see me at the computer and i could feel it all the way up to me okay there's another story and this is now not greys, this is the tall whites. I've interviewed half a dozen people in the last few months who have had interactions with a being, the skin looks like white chalk, everybody agrees on that. Even the hair looks like it is dusty with like white chalk, even though it may have gold in it. That the uh, eyes, most people cannot sketch quite very well. They're just small, and they are not at all like the grays. They they are more like our eyes, but it's still in this white powdery skin. And they wear essentially leotards from the neck down to the feet, which we, I think, have all been being educated, that a lot of the extraterrestrials all wear these leotards because they are protection suits from everything. Their protection from disease, from heat, from cold, from anything. And they all kind of wear these kinds of suits, including the greys, the Nordics, and the tall whites. Well, here is a very interesting phrase from a man in Australia. A very interesting case. Uh, he felt like for a while he was being educated by this being that showed up in his garden. And he said, I could never get over that trying to stand, knowing that this being wasn't there to hurt me. But Linda, you just can't get used to the frequencies that are coming off of them. And I'm talking about the tall whites now. And that, well, so what you said may be the key that there, <laughs> there are alien frequencies. Maybe we give off frequencies to them, but there is something that is so strange between these beings and us that you get these kinds of descriptions. I wonder if animals who, are, who we encounter who are frightened of us perceive frequencies coming off of us. Like uh, if you walk in the woods and you see raccoons, they're immediately terrified of you. Right. I wonder. But my maybe maybe it's 
not just extraterrestrials. Maybe it's a part of nature that we are not sensitive to unless we are in the presence of something like uh, that we're not tamed to in any way and don't feel superior to. My cats, I can just look at chocolate, just look and be thinking, oh, I love you, beautiful cat, but I don't say anything. I don't. And he will immediately uh, come over purring. And I've done that with both of them, but chocolate especially. And that means I haven't said anything. I haven't done anything. I'm not close. I'm just thinking how much I love you. And here comes my cat. <laughs> well, that could be that could be the answer that, that, you know, that they pick up on frequencies that we don't pick up on. And, and maybe it's, could it be that the ETs don't pick up on them either and don't understand why we're so frightened any more than we understand it ourselves? Well, I'm going to ask you a question back because it is puzzling about the whole big picture going back 270 million years. If that is true, what the DIA analyst told me in December 1999, our government has proof that three competing in conflict with each other extraterrestrial civilizations have been fighting on this planet and over this planet for at least 270 million years. And that what I read in that document at uh, here at Hall or at uh, Kirtland Air Force Base in April of 1983, these extraterrestrial biological entities, but it doesn't say which ones, just these extraterrestrial biological entities manipulated DNA in already evolving primates to create Homo sapiens sapien. All questions and mysteries about the evolution of Homo sapien on this planet have been answered, and this project is closed. Those are two literal sentences burned in my mind. I have never forgotten them. That means that the extraterrestrial civilizations interacting with this solar system and this planet go back 270 million years. Homo erectus is, by definition, by scientists, only 2 million years old, the crossfade between Neanderthal and Cro-Magnon Homo sapiens sapien happened only 45,000 years ago. That would seem to me to say that all of the competing extraterrestrials who have manipulated DNA and harvested eggs and sperm from whatever they have been making on this planet, we are a product of at least two or three extraterrestrials contributing and mixing and matching genes. So aren't we, aren't we exactly what they were trying to make over all these millions of years? Well, it would seem so. Uh, however, I do have one caveat here, and that is that getting the truth out of them is not easy. And, they, I, I'm just wondering if that narrative is true or it's something that was given to someone in, I guess, in, in, in some kind of interface involving the Air Force, which they assumed was true because it was being told to them by such an unusual source. And it could all be fake. I mean, it could be that they've just gotten here. You just don't know the answer for sure. 
because they can manipulate time so much that well, exactly. make well that's another thing. What if they can? What if they came here in 1947 and then created a kind of an echo of themselves back across the past to make them make it look as if they had always been here? But the argument against that, from my point of view, is the Anunnaki. I believe that is a real civilization. I believe they are warring. I think that the Anunnaki were at least contributors to some of the manipulation of DNA in ancient evolving primate species, and that everything that we have left carved in cuneiform is about infighting. Talk about people or humanoids that hated each other, even if they might love a few they were constantly in conflict with each other. And that seems to me to be echoed in humanity. That could be true. I I would not deny it. I would not say I'm not going to close any doors at all. In fact, I think the key here is to figure out how do we keep the doors of question open. And uh, because until we have facts on the ground, we are going to, I mean, we have grounded facts, I should say. We have to be sure that we keep, sort of keep, keep speculating that we don't, we don't decide that one thing is true and then, then fix our minds on that because they, they're so deceptive. Linda, I, I've often wondered if they can tell the truth. And that alone should be some kind of a flashing red light that after all of these decades since World War II, we are talking about one of the biggest concerns of people who have worked in aerospace with beings, who have worked in the military with beings. Everybody says they can lie. Why would humanity, Homo sapiens sapiens, always be at the end of something very deceptive on the part of a variety of extraterrestrials. What is it that we are that we get deception from them on a chronic basis? You know, my dad was a very brilliant lawyer and a very wise man. And he used to say, Gritty, if someone lies to you, then you cannot believe them at all. You have to keep every single thing they say in question. Right. From the moment you know they're liars. That's right. Completely agree. And then that makes this all even more difficult because what are the layers over 270 million years of Nordics with blonde hair, blue eye, white skin, Tall whites, eight to ten feet tall, skin like chalk. They are supposed to be the geniuses. That's the way it's been described to me. Of all of them, the tall whites are the most powerful in terms of their ability to move and tunnel in the quantum fabric of the universe uh, that they are trying to teach us some of it. But at the same time, why then? Why at the beginning of the 20th century? Why was the United States of America interacted with, not by tall whites, not by Nordics, grays? The Betty and Barney Hill case being the most famous beginning. 
Right. And and most of the cases are, are grays. So yeah. that's my case is grays. Well, you know, we have to leave it at some point, Linda. I <laughs> promised you we would do half an hour. We've, we've done close to an hour, as always. And you and I could enjoyably talk for the rest of the day. <laughs> I know. That, I know. It, there aren't many of us who can have this kind of a discussion. So thank you, dear Whitley. Oh, and thank you, dear Linda. All of our years of doing this together have, I hope, accomplished something. And they've certainly been fun. And may there be many more of them. And may 2023, can you believe it, be an extraordinary and wonderful year for every single human being. And goodness knows how many others on this planet and bring the headline we have long needed and and we earned we are not alone in this universe thank you very much linda moulton howe linda moulton howe's website is earthfiles.com and if you do not know about her youtube channel you might not be from this planet <laughs> And she's on Gaia, and you, Linda is a, a a great force in this in this corner of the world in which we are trying to change every corner of the world. Thank you. Those of you who listen to the free side, subscribe because the site offers an awful lot, and it is absolutely unique in the world. And as I say every time I talk to you about it. We need you, and I hope you come. All right. I'd like to talk a little bit about the coming year. I think it's liable to be a pretty hard year in some respects. I don't think the weather's going to cooperate with us very much anymore at all, and we're going to have to live, learn to live with that. I think that drought and extreme weather conditions around the world are going to become the norm, and we just have to cope with it. We're going to try harder and harder to fix our planet, and I hope we can, and I hope we know how, and we'll find out. Anyway, Christmas season is coming and going these two weeks. It's always a very precious season to me. I have lots of wonderful memories. My daddy was a Christmas bug, and he loved Christmas, and I love Christmas too. And this is kind of a Christmas memory this little poem, and a Christmas thought as well about someone who maybe started it all a very long time ago. Christmas. Three days and one after the sun begins to return, fires are lit on the gathered snow, dancing starts because they know the world will continue somehow, the sun's excursion is done. They dream of the waving wheat while stomping in the blowing snow. The Romans feasted on last summer's food. Why not? More would come and soon. But then there's Bethlehem, a child is shining born, and shepherds are perplexed by mysterious transits in the night. Tiny, warmed by the breath of cattle, mother not yet wed, a family desperate with mystery the shepherds coming the eyes turned inward to the wonder they have seen the father afraid what will happen to my son is he my son 
and my wife. What does her story mean? They're in a cave behind an inn. Nobody cares. He's a bit of flesh wrapped in a thin old cloak. Hardly there at all. Just another babe, but the only one born here tonight. So what were those lights? He lives a hard life and dies a miserable death. He's here now, only waiting to be noticed again, as he was then, just briefly by a few perplexed shepherds. Christmas lights, t'was the night before, jolly Saint Nick, presents under the tree, children shuddering with glee, cookies and candy and cinnamon-spiked brandy, half a billion trees ornamented and dying, children afraid that their lists will be ignored for their lying. Then the morning and he came, Santa despite the snow and rain, Xboxes, iPads, books below, roses, toy trains, watches and neckties, spun sugar and video games. The church all swarming with charming kids, the priest pronouncing them wishing he was done. All the joy of the day, the quiet of the afternoon, the wonder we have made, the miracles accomplished. And back there in the past, the shadow of another life now long over, whose gifts linger yet in our compassion, our love, our humble souls. He gave us those. Merry Christmas from me and everyone who works on Unknown Country and Dreamland. We're so grateful for your participation and your interest. Let's look forward to an extraordinary, but perhaps less interesting, 2023 than we had in 2022. Oh.